This morning we'll read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. And we're continuing to work through this particular chapter as we seek to learn and know more about how we grow in Christ. And the title of today's message is how we behave in a foreign land and why. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honour all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the King. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, once again we come before your awesome throne, thanking you for the precious word of God which we hold in our hands today. We thank you for the amazing way which you've given it to us. And we thank you that we can trust every word within it. And Father, we pray now that not only we will trust these words, but that our hearts would be completely given to it, that our hearts would be ready to receive the truth that your Spirit would seek to bestow us. So Father, I pray for each and every head that's bowed here this morning, that you would bless them and help them to understand the Word of God fully, and that by your grace, they and I may live it with all of our lives and all of our hearts, that we would love you with every ounce of our being, Father, because you deserve all of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a fair bit of turmoil going on in the world today. And I look at the, uh, the news and some of the uh, articles that are coming out of America. Some of you may have heard about a particular movement that's happening over there called Black Lives Matter. Most of you would have heard that. And that particular movement has its focus around um, the seemingly large number of black men that are shot by police officers in America. And that seems to be, there seems to be a great disparity between the number of black men that are shot and the number of white men. And so they've got this this particular um, movement happening over there. And recently, uh, as I see, another man has been shot who was in his car by a policeman. They thought he had a gun, or maybe they were just a bit too jittery, so they they let a few bullets fly and he passed away. Um, They may or may not have a point. I don't know enough about the information over there to be able to judge one way or the other. But it seems that in our world today, perception is the most important thing rather than the facts necessarily. Okay? And they're having protests in, I think it's called Charlotte. And it's been, they've been going for about five days. And generally they've been peaceful. But there are elements within any particular movement that would seek to undermine a peaceful uh, protest with um, violence. So people have been shot, police officers have been attacked, and, and, and uh, there is violence that's occurring. And that's not particular to to just that particular um, uh, protest march. It's common. 
It's common that within any group that disagrees with the government or disagrees with the authorities, that there are particular elements within that group that would seek to use violence to actually achieve their, their, their ends and achieve their purposes. There have always been people with agendas and gripes against authorities or governments or police that have sought through violence to be able to um, achieve their means. And this method is also used by terrorist groups. Others in our society seek to manipulate public opinion. So not necessarily using violence, but they use and try to manipulate public opinion through intimidation and by demonising their opponents or people that would disagree with them by painting them in negative terms. This is what's currently happening to Christians. If you notice more and more in the media that we are portrayed as thickheads, that we're portrayed as ignorant, as bigots, as racists, as pretty much anything, any label under the sun that you can actually uh, uh, think of, if we don't agree with the latest agenda that's coming forth. You see, if you pay attention to what happens in, in Western society, what they do is... is a particular, they'll, they'll have a particular, particular agenda. Let's say they want, to, they want to push a particular topic, right? And it might be something like abortion rights or gay marriage or, or euthanasia or a few. There are plenty of different topics. So what they'll do is they'll test the public to see what their attitude is towards it. And then what they'll do is they'll frame the, the, the types of questions and the arguments in particular ways to make it look as if anyone who disagrees with that is somehow bigoted, racist, and, and, uh, and, and whatever else it is. So, for example, let's take gay marriage. We have in our country a, uh, a looks like, possibly, a referendum or, referendum or plebiscite that's coming up, if they can actually agree um, with, the, with, with each other over there in, uh, in government, about this thing called gay marriage. And, and if you notice the way it's framed, they don't call it gay marriage, they don't call it um, a homosexual uh, union. What they call it is marriage equality. Marriage equality. In other words, if you don't agree with this particular marriage equality, that makes you someone who doesn't agree with equality between people. So if you disagree with it, you automatically come out looking in a particular way to be against the equality of everyone even though it may have nothing to do with it at all. So, and if you disagree with uh, that particular argument, you're automatically classed as homophobic. Well, homophobic means that you're afraid of homosexuals. I'm not afraid of homosexuals. In fact, I, I love them. God's called me to love everyone. And I have a desire for them to be saved. And if I didn't have a desire for them to be saved, I wouldn't love them. So that that's, goes hand in hand. But if you're called a homophobic, it necessarily means that you're afraid of them. So therefore, you're reacting to them rather than actually... Um, you, like, you can't have an opinion without being that. You know, violence, violent and violent means aren't necessarily always with a sword or a gun. Violence also happens... Um, in a manipulative um, and strategic way with arguments. When Jesus spoke to his disciples, 
In Matthew chapter 11, he said, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. You remember John the Baptist was beheaded for what he believed. And when Jesus came on the scene, it wasn't um, that they accepted him and received him with open arms, did they? Because they sought from the very beginning to actually have him killed. The violent take things by force. So regardless of the arguments in this world, biblical Christians, and there's very few biblical Christians, okay, don't ever think that if you look at the, the majority of people who call themselves Christians are not biblical Christians. If you ever watch um, the debates that might happen on, um, on TV where supposed Christians are arguing against other people about these particular topics, you will find that very, very few of them ever argue from a biblical basis. They're arguing from the same basis and philosophical basis as the rest of the world, and they fail every time. So biblical Christians are being labelled as discriminators, biased, old-fashioned, narrow-minded. And just to let you know, this will only escalate with time. And we must be prepared for it. As time goes by, more and more boundaries are being pushed by a godless majority. We'll find ourselves in a greater and greater minority. Unlike the dominionists, unlike the, um, the a particular brand of, um, of, uh, or philosophy of, uh, of, of uh, eschatology, we aren't going to Christianise the world. Sorry about it. We aren't going to win. In fact, Jesus says when he returns, will I find faith on the earth? And the answer is rhetorical. And the actual question is rhetorical. He isn't going to find faith. So one day the Lord will come and take us home to be with him and then judgment will befall this world. But despite this, because it's not an all doom and gloom, you understand that, don't you? God's already won. We know that God has already won victory. Despite the state of the world, the Bible says we are never to fear or despair. We are never to fear or despair because our God is in control. He is always with us and as I mentioned this morning, he will never leave us nor forsake us. But understand that we are oftentimes on enemy soil. So we are continuing this, this series on how are we to grow in Christ. And the questions that we seek to answer today is, how are we called to behave in this world? How are we called to live in this world? So Peter began this particular chapter by making it very clear about what our position is in this world. That we, are, that we have been saved and that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, but also that we have been made citizens of heaven and we've relinquished, as I mentioned in my last sermon, we've relinquished our citizenship of this world. We are no longer citizens of this world. And as the, the scripture says in the, the verses leading up to this particular passage, that we are sojourners. This is not our home. We are pilgrims coming, working through or walking through this earth. We don't belong here anymore. This is not our world. 
And we need to understand, first of all, if you want to grow in Christ, you need to understand that important principle. Because if you don't, you will see yourself as part of this world. And you will be frustrated because it's not going to go your way. What you will believe in your heart about the Lord Jesus Christ and the things the Bible says, the world will come against that. And so you will feel always as if you can't fit in. And the reason is because you don't. You don't fit in. You will never fit in. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples, who pretty much all suffered death because of what they believed, except for John, who was imprisoned on an island. <coughs> the Bible says that if you have faith, you will indeed suffer persecution, one way or the other. So if we understand our position, it helps us to then behave accordingly because we are called for a much higher purpose. We're not called to fight this world. We're not called to, um, to argue against people and try to shift public thinking our way. It's not going to work. As much as we may want to tell everyone how wicked abortion is or, or how wrong a gay marriage is or whatever else they may throw at us, we essentially won't win because it's actually going in one particular direction. So Peter begins his chapter by clearly telling us that we are new creatures. Our citizenship is now in heaven. We do not belong here anymore and our home is already in heaven. You're not working your way there, please. Don't ever think to yourself that you're working your way to heaven. You're already there. In God's eyes, if you are saved, you're there, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Your name is written there. Your citizenship is already there. The only difference is you're waiting for that boat to take you home. But the Spirit of God anticipates a question in this. Because if we are ambassadors from heaven, if we are the people who actually represent heaven, that we're the children of God who live in a very sin-darkened world, how am I to live in this world if I am no longer a citizen of it? Well, how am I meant to be? I'm no longer subject to the laws of this world. One of my obligations to those in authority here, if I am no longer one of them, you see, you're no longer one of them. You're altogether different. So he begins by answering that question with the way we are to behave toward every person here and the reason why. Look at verse 12. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. I spoke about this particular verse last week. We are to live our lives in honesty in front of them. And that essentially means that we live, that our actions mirror our words and what we say we believe. If we believe in the love of heaven, the grace of heaven, if we believe in God's standard, then we will represent what heaven is on this earth with our everyday lives. We will live honestly in front of them. Our life must match our speech. In all things, we are not to be like the Pharisees who were in Jesus' day, 
who Jesus called hypocrites because they said they represented God. They said they were, they were there to serve him. But then when it comes down, when it boils, all boils down to it, they weren't living honestly at all. And Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. So when you start getting hypocrisy in your life, it grows very quickly and people see it. So how does honest, living an honest life look? Well, it says that we are to be rich in good works. In that very same verse, that they may buy you, that they by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Rich in good works. Works that they will naturally see. Not works you do just in your home by yourself. Because the works that God has called us to, to walk in, He has prepared for us already. And we are called simply to be faithful and to walk in those works which are a testimony to the world of his grace and his love. And then at the end, when it's all said and done, and the day of visitation comes, they will have to bow the knee and say, God, you were right. I remember what brother so-and-so did. I remember what Terence did. I remember what Paul did. I remember what they did. And what they did was actually right. And I was wrong. Our lives should be a great witness of the grace that only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. If they don't see Jesus in us, let me ask you a question this morning. Where will they see him? Where do you expect them to see him? Do you think they're, they're reading their Bibles at home? Looking for Jesus in there. If they don't see Jesus in us, where will they find him? On, 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 a, on the internet? Uh, on the, what? On a billboard? We're the ones who are his hands and his feet in this world. If we don't look like him, if we don't behave like him, if we don't represent him by the way we speak and the way we act to these people who are living in darkness, then they will not see him. And that's the works that God has prepared for you. The question is, will we be faithful enough to walk in them? So the rest of this chapter must be seen in the light of our new identity in Christ. And Peter now anticipates another question that would naturally arise from believing that we are no longer citizens of this world, but citizens of heaven. What then is my obligation toward the expectations of ungodly civil authorities? What's God's expectation of me with respect to the world's government? You see, I'm under his government. I'm under God's rule. He's my king. So what am I expected to do with respect to the government of Australia or the government of any country, for that matter, or the state government or your local authorities? What does God want us to do with respect to them? Do I have to obey them? Since I'm actually under the authority of heaven, well... Peter answers this in a very emphatic and unequivocal... He gives an unequivocal response. He says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. That's That's a scary thing when you think of it. Submit myself to every ordinance of man? You mean, God, I'm, I'm, I'm a citizen of heaven and you want me to submit myself to them as well? And just to make, make it sure that there's no ambiguity here... 
He lists the various levels of government. He says, he starts off by saying, with a king, right? By starting from a king down to local governors, and even then goes on to even say, submit yourself to your bosses, to your earthly bosses and masters. So in our case, we are subject, we are called to subject ourselves to the federal government, to the laws of the federal government, to its rulings, to its statutes. We are called to submit ourselves to state governments, to local councils. It means that we are to cooperate with and respect police, anyone else that represents the government in this world. Because God has allowed these people to come into power. And without them, they wouldn't be in power. So turn to Romans chapter 13 with me as we just explore this particular topic for the moment. Because the question I have is, if Peter tells us to obey earthly governments, is this the only place in Scripture that it says it? Does anyone else agree with him in Scripture? Is there anyone else who actually says that we are to submit ourselves to earthly governments and laws? Well, there is. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake, For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their Jews tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Could he have made it any clearer? (laughs) that we have to obey the government. He even goes so far as to say, make sure you pay your taxes at the end. Don't defraud the government of taxes. Now, there are people who will argue and say, oh, but they're using my money for ungodly means. I'm sorry. If they were paying taxes in Jesus' day, if Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, guess what Caesar was doing in his day? Do you think he was doing... Was he a better guy than the, the, the government we have at the moment? No, he was much worse. Okay? So if Jesus says in his day to render to Caesar, then we are to render to Caesar that which is Caesar. And then whatever, you, whatever Caesar does or whatever the politicians do with our money, that's their issue that they'll, they'll, they'll answer to God for. Okay? It's not our responsibility. 
to worry about they're using our money for whatever they're using it for. Paul says here that every power is there only because God has ordained for them to be there. He then says that resisting the government means that you resist God as well. <coughs> to resist the government, that means to be judged by God himself for disobedience. So to disobey a government means sin. Paul then says the purpose for why they are there. The purpose of a government is to punish evil and to reward good. That's the purpose of a government. The purpose of a government is to create a, uh, an environment in which a society can flourish and people can live in peace. Every government wants that. No government wants anarchy. No government wants breakdowns. Every government, regardless of how foolish and silly and, and whatever philosophy they have, wants their country or their nation or whatever else they've got control of to be in some sort of order. And as much as you might not agree with the government of the day, by and large, they want the good for their society, even though you might not agree with their, their philosophy about it. Okay? Even the bad ones. Okay? This tells us something about God's thoughts about authority. It tells us that he likes it. God likes authority. God likes order. He likes structure. He's in favour of it. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. What God has instituted in heaven, see, heaven has order. Heaven has angels that are in positions to do certain things. God is sitting on his throne as the ruler, and each of them has a specific role to play, as it is in everything that God has created. So God has instituted authority in heaven, authority in government on the earth, authority in the home, authority in the church, and authority even at work where you do your thing to earn your money. All in all, God is a God of order and expects us to act in an orderly fashion, which means to submit ourselves to the laws and rules of the land because by and large, government laws are there to make, secure, make sure society does not break down. Things like thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not do a lot of other things. Actually, most of the laws in most lands line up with what the Bible teaches or what the, what the laws are, because they make sense. Because if everyone was encouraged to kill each other and everyone was encouraged to steal from each other, society would break down. And where they don't match up to God's laws, where their laws don't match up to God's laws, they generally will not force their people to do them. For example, they will not force you generally, as a Christian or whoever, to go and kill someone, will they? I never heard governments calling to kill each other. Uh, sorry, Chinese maybe. <laughs> sorry? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He could encourage you, but can he force you to do that? No, he's, he's looking out. He's trying to get rid of all the, all the drug dealers from the Philippines by killing them all before they ever get a chance to go to court. Um, 
But he, he may encourage people to do that in his country, but he's doing it for a particular reason, isn't he? Because he thinks that there's actually a problem in his country and he wants to sort it out. You might not agree with the way he's doing it, okay? And you don't have to become involved in it because they can't say to you, you have to do it, otherwise you're going to jail yourself. This is my point. How does this relate to... And good question. How does this all relate, though, to evil or bad rulers? Because everyone's got that, that question. That, that question naturally pops up in your mind, where you have evil or bad rulers. Well, you know something? Interestingly enough, the Lord has used from time to time the most evil men to judge and to chastise his own people and to bring them back to him. He did it with Israel a number of times. And he's allowed evil men to rule countries and governments, which has resulted in the persecution of his own people. He did this with Israel when he allowed the Assyrians and Babylonians to overcome them. He did this even in the early church, which caused the dispersion from Jerusalem. You see, God told his disciples to go into all the world, okay, to make disciples of all nations. And guess where they were most comfortable? Sitting in Jerusalem. With a nice big church. We've got thousands of them all together. We're all here together. So what does God do? He turns up the persecution. And what ended up happening? They ended up going into all different parts. Because the persecution ramped up over there. Because of the persecution in, in Jerusalem, in Israel... Um, Christians dispersed into much of the world and some of the, the, people, the peoples we have um, who became Christian are the result of the apostles going into really far out places. Okay? Let me tell you a bit about the first 200 years of the church and the persecution that it endured. I got this from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. For 200 years, to, be, to become a Christian meant the great renunciation, the joining a despised and persecuted sect, the swimming against the tide of popular prejudice, the coming under the ban of the empire, the possibility at any moment of imprisonment and death under its most fearful forms. For 200 years, he that would follow Christ must count the cost and be prepared to pay the same with his liberty and life. Simply the confession of a Christian name in periods of stress, and that's when, when particular uh, emperors and kings decided that Christians were a threat to the empire and they started persecuting them really badly. During periods of stress, not a few met the rack, the blazing shirt of pitch, the lion, the panther, or in the case of maidens, an infamy worse than death. That was Tertullian who wrote that. And Tertullian in the 2nd and 3rd centuries writes this. To them, the people, the contemporaries of his time, we live beside you in the world, making use of the same forum, market, bath, shop, inn, and all other places of trade. We sail with you, fight shoulder to shoulder. We till the soil and traffic with you. Yet the very existence of Christian faith and its profession continues to bring the greatest risks. With the best will in the world, they remained a peculiar people who must be prepared at any moment to meet the storm of hatred. For them it remained true 
that in one way or another, hatred on the part of the world inevitably fell to the lot of those who walked in the footsteps of their master. And then he quotes 2 Timothy chapter 3, All that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. For the first 300 years of the church, the various emperors of Rome responded differently to Christianity. While it was seen as a sect of Judaism in, from, in Rome, so for a, quite a while, the Romans thought that Christianity was simply a part of Judaism, of the Jews. And while it was in that particular position, it wasn't persecuted that much. But when it was seen as an independent religion, it was seen as a, a, a faith that undermined the stability of the, of the whole empire. And the Christians began to, began to experience much greater persecution. Each emperor responded differently. Some made Christians the scapegoat of all the, of all the empire's ills, while others had more important things to pursue. While it could be argued that the greatest challenge for the church didn't come during the years that it was persecuted. Because you know something? For the first two and three hundred years, the church grew. The more they threw to the lions, the more they burned at the stake, the more they, the more they harassed and, 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 and chased, the more people became Christians. Strange. The greatest challenge for the church wasn't really when it was being persecuted. The greatest challenge for the church was when it was made the official empire religion in 380. Because then all of a sudden everything got muddied. The government got together with Christianity and they made a religion that fit everyone. And ever since then, the, the, the Christians have struggled to distinguish what's going on. Many people have not realised that when that happened, it, it ripped the heart out of, out of Christianity. But God allows these governments to come into power. In fact, turn with me to Exodus chapter 9, verse 15. I want to show you some examples here. Exodus chapter 9, verse 15. God speaks here about Pharaoh. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in, and in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. You know, Pharaoh was a pretty bad guy. He held the people of God captive and would not release them, even under God's judgment, time after time. The guy was a thoroughly evil person. Yet the Bible says, and God says here, that he raised him up for that purpose. That through him, God, God's name would be magnified and glorified in the earth. And he did. Through the Exodus story, God used the evil of man to contrast his power and his justice. And he used that man. He raised him up for that particular purpose. Turn to John chapter 19 verse 10 with me. 
John chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. Now, Jesus is standing before Pilate, being judged. So the king of heaven is being judged by an earthly governor, by someone who has so little power compared to him, it seems ludicrous. So in verse 10 of chapter 19, it says, Then then saith Pilate unto him, Speaketh thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? And Jesus answered, that couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Jesus says to him, so Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know, speak up, answer my questions, because I've got the power to kill you or the power to release you. And Jesus goes, you've got no power unless, unless upstairs has given you that power. And guess where he was from? Up there. You see, it was God who allowed and gave the authority to someone like Pilate. Interesting, isn't it? How does God give authority to ungodly men? But keep in mind, we have a world with 7 billion people, and how many of them are Christians? You ever thought about that? Not many. Not many at all. If you will look, find genuine Christians in this world, you will not find out of that... Can you find a billion, you think, Christians in this world? Could you find half a billion? Let's say, let's say we were really, really, really optimistic and there were half a billion Christians out there, 500 million of them, who believe in the Word of God and have been genuinely born again, receive the Spirit of God and are actually God's children. Well, that leaves six and a half billion people with no God in their lives. Do you know what God does? He at least provides them rulers to give them structure in their lives so that in that structure, they can actually get to hear the gospel. Do you understand? Because if there was anarchy, if there wasn't government in the world, the world would be a complete disaster zone. So God allowing and God ordaining leaders in countries is a blessing and a grace to them. Just as the Bible says that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, God gives his grace to everyone in the world, regardless of whether they believe in him or not. And part of that grace that God gives are governments. Because only with a proper government can you have a society that can function and that you can have the ability of the church to flourish. We must look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And what did Jesus do? Did he take up arms when they came to, when they came to arrest him and, 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 and try him? No, he didn't. Peter tried. Peter tried, grabbed the, grabbed the sword, knocked off someone's ear, and Jesus says, put that thing away. Because he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And don't you know that I can call down 12 legions of angels even now? Jesus is our perfect example. 
And if there are those who contradict the laws of God, then you're not called to contradict the laws of God. They can't stop you from being a Christian, right? If it becomes illegal for us to be Christians, and so be it. Because it's happened before. But, generally, the government's there to maintain peace and order in a country. And we are called to be its best citizens. The best ones. The shining examples of what it means to be a good citizen. The government can't force you to do what's against your faith. They can't make you kill or deny Christ. They can't make you lie or steal and so on. They can't change who you are as a believer. But this is not resisting government. This is just being who you are. This is, this is if they try to make you something that you're not. We may have our freedoms restricted or taken from us, and so be it. We may even be put in prison for being a Christian. But as Peter later states in verse 20, he says, But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. This doesn't just apply to leaders. This applies to every part of our lives. If you do that which is right to the people around you, to the people that we are living under, in a sense, in this world, if you do what's right and you suffer for it, you know God finds that acceptable. He's okay with that. Because in all things, the Bible says that he is able to help us to grow and nourish us and watch over us. So even while they're killing us, and we haven't suffered any persecution compared to other countries, the Bible says that God is pleased. So the, the scriptures say, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whatever we do, we are called to be model citizens. We should not break the laws of the land we live in as far as we possibly can. As Romans chapter 12 verse 17 says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. As much as we possibly can, we're called to live in peace with other people. We're called to live perfectly upright and righteous lives in this world. And Peter says, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, that's an interesting verse when you think of it. It says, you'll, by your well-doing, you'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Well, you know, the, the, the apostles and disciples would have done a lot of good things, huh? a lot of well-doing. Yet they were all killed for what they believed. The witness of our lives may not be received in this life. But there is one thing we know, that in the end every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we shall be witnesses in that day, as we are now, that the good deeds that God has prepared for us to do, we walked in right and true. Thus don't expect the ignorance of foolish men to be put to silence this week, or next week, or in a month, or in a year. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it means in the end, every tongue will confess. 
In the end, there'll be nothing to say. Every tongue will be stopped. But want to be a blessing. When you stand before the Lord and the world is judged and God shows them, look what I did for you. Look at what my child did as a testimony of my love for you and you neglected it every step of the way. Want to be a blessing for us when we say, look at that, I walked, I did that for the Lord. I walked in his works. The shame for us will be if God prepared the works and we didn't walk in them. <coughs> Don't expect the ignorance of foolish men to be finished up anytime soon. But if there are those who by our works are convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit and they turn to Christ because of our witness, what a glory it is. What a blessing it will be for us. Because of our faithfulness, they came to Christ and one more got saved. Brother Tex and, um, and Dave had a blessing this week. Ten people gave their lives to the Lord. Ten in a week. Isn't that extraordinary? Our behaviour, our life is naturally meant to argue against the foolishness of men. And though they might accuse us of ignorance or maliciousness, we are not to confirm their views. We are called to live within the laws of the land. We are called to obey the, the people in, uh, in authority and their subordinates. And we are called to live exemplary lives in honour of our king, in reference to him, because of him. Do you know something interesting? In America, they just did a study and they put a net value on what the churches are worth in the United States. And did you know that, that the net worth of the, the churches and what they contribute to the country over there is $1.2 trillion per annum? $1.2 trillion are brought into the economy in the United States because of the work the churches do. And that's not probably counting a lot of other things. But what that, what, that does, what that means is that the top 10 companies in America, so when you put together Google, Apple, who else is there floating around? IBM, Coke, or whatever. Do you know, when you line up the 10 biggest companies in the United States and all the, the, the tax and the things they pay and the input, it doesn't even match up to what the church adds to the economy over there. Because the church looks after people that need looking after. It counsels people that need counselling. It provides a place and stability for people who would have otherwise gone into crime and things of that nature. When you look at the net effect the church has, it is astronomical. And the governments probably know that quite well. That if you take away the influence of the church and its grace and its blessings to the economy... Uh, Western countries would actually struggle. You'd have a lot more people involved in crime. I mean, all of us know people who have testimonies who would have been criminals or dead or, some, or something else if they, were, if they had continued on the path that they'd gone down. But because the Lord Jesus Christ saved them out of that, 
and they found a good church to be able to worship in and learn and grow in, that they're not a burden to society anymore. They've gone from, from stealing and killing and doing what else, what else to actually being a, a good citizen, which is a blessing for any country. So Peter says, as free in verse 16, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, as free. Yeah, we may not like the, 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 the government that we have. You may not have voted for them, and that's fine. But we're called to submit ourselves to them. We are free, which is an interesting verse or an interesting phrase because it's with respect to being under the governments, being under laws. The Bible says we are not under their laws. We are free. We are under heaven's law. And so we have technically been freed from any earthly or man-made law, but we are not to use our freedom to be malicious towards others. We should never have maliciousness as our motivation toward anyone. Our motivation is Christ and his grace and his love. You see... There are some people, as I mentioned right at the beginning, if they don't agree with the government, what do they do? They cause terror and they, and they try to manipulate and they use violence. That's not us. We may disagree with the government of the day or with their policies. We are not called to become malicious. We're the exact opposite. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ is the one that draws us in a particular direction. That's our motivating factor for everyone out there. We are not called to rebel or fight against earthly governments. We are not called to argue or protest and cause disruption. That's maliciousness. We are not called to insurgency or rebellion, for this is the devil's strategy. We must remember that at all times on this earth, we are the servants of the living God. We are his children, his people, his representatives in a world that is absolutely covered with sin and under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. We are on enemy ground, but we are to live as exemplary heaven citizens. We've been called to make a difference and not just any difference, but the eternal difference that God wants and so Peter tells us what our attitude should be towards those in this world, whether just regular people or people in high places. We are to honour, in verse 17, all men. Honour them. We are to love the brotherhood, fear God, and we are to honour the king. All men are to be honoured because they were created in the image of God and as much as it's defaced and deformed and marred, it's under there somewhere. And we've been called to lead them back to the Lord Jesus Christ so he can restore that image that he once gave them. We've been called to that. So we are called to honour that thing that God has created in man originally. We were created in his image. As much as they've departed from the Lord, it's floating under there. We've been called for that to be restored. We are the only ones with the message that can restore that image. And we are to honour them as such. The Bible says we are to honour our Prime Minister and other dignitaries as well. And the Bible says we are to love the brotherhood. Who's the brotherhood? 
It's the, the brotherhood of... Uh, the brotherhood is every believer in this world. The Bible, say, the Bible says that we had to love each other so much that when they see that love that we have for each other, it's meant to cause and say, what type of love do these guys have for each other? What is going on here? The love that we have for each other needs to be such a deep love that God has for us. That it's, it's meant to be striking. It's meant to be different. It's meant to show them what genuine love is really all about. And though it's, though it's a king that we've been called to honour, it is God alone whom we should fear. And he is the ultimate one who sets our standard. He is the ultimate one who tells us how to live and we live our lives according to him and for him. He is the ultimate judge and ruler of every person. And for their sake, as well as ours, we should seek always to obey him in everything. Thus, we shouldn't fear the world, the devil, sin, or our own flesh. We are called to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Whatever the world brings against us, it cannot win. It cannot defeat you. Did you know that? The Bible says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So there is nothing that can come against you. No weapon that's formed, that's fashioned against you can prosper. So let me tell you something today. You are not a victim. Regardless of where you find yourself, you may find or we may find ourselves in prison tomorrow. You're not a victim. And don't ever see yourself as a victim. Because we're not victims, we're weaknesses. And wherever the Lord would use us, whether it means we go to our deaths, whether it means we're ridiculed, whether it means we're ostracised or we're made fun of or whatever else it is, none of us are victims. Because we have much more than this world can ever understand. You have everything at your disposal. You have heaven that you, will, that you will see one day and that can't be taken away from you. So don't ever see yourself as a victim of this world because this is only temporary. But what we have is eternal. This is only rubbish. But we have, the, we have heaven waiting for us. We have the Lord Jesus Christ and you have, if you have him, you have everything. And there is no one that can take him away from you. So don't be conformed to the ways of this world. Don't ever think that you have to conform to their standards and their way of doing things. You do things the way God wants you to do them. You do them the way the, the word of God tells you to do them. And you stand firm. Because there is no one that can defeat you. Let me close with one, one piece of scripture. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and we'll, we'll wrap it up. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't do it their way. 
Do it God's way. Let the word of God transform your mind and your heart to think and be like him. The more you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, the more the cares and the troubles of this world will seem very, very small. But our time is short. So remember that we only have a limited time on this world. Make the most of it. Live your life 100% for God. Don't be conformed to the rubbish that the world has to offer. It never satisfies. God bless you. Thank you.